justified. Look at this text this morning. Uh, this is not a text that's a moral lesson about Cain and Abel. This text this morning is about the Lord Jesus Christ. We wonder how, how, is, how is Genesis 4 about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Genesis 4 follows on the heels of Genesis 3 that we saw last week, where sin entered into the world. Tragedy. We see the lies of Satan. We see temptation. We see Adam and Eve succumb to that temptation. We see Eve deceive. We see Adam failing and both sinning and bring upon them a curse, bring upon the whole ground, the whole earth, the cosmos, a curse. And in the midst of that curse, God promises them something in Genesis 3.15. Look at Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We notice here a conflict that God promises between the descendants of Satan and the descendants of the woman. And one of those descendants of the woman, singular, he is going to crush the serpent. And we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we don't know, or at least those who received this word and those who were living at this time in Genesis chapter 4, they knew that promise, but they did not know what that was going to look like. And so Genesis chapter 4 really is an unfolding of God's promise of these two offspring, those of Satan and those of the woman, and the enmity and the battle and the conflict between them, and then the victorious Lord Jesus Christ who is going to crush Satan in his death and resurrection. And then when he returns, Scripture says, then will come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know ultimate victory, ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 comes when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and death will be no more. Sin will be no more. Satan will be crushed and be no more. But before we get to the end, we're looking at the beginning. And so sin has just entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, and now we begin in Genesis chapter 4. So we're going back to that time immediately after the fall, when they have this promise of hope that Satan can be destroyed. But the question is, well, who is the one, who is the offspring who is going to crush the serpent? They don't know yet who this might be. So look with me at Genesis 4, 1 and 2. It says, Adam knew his knew Eve, his wife. Okay, they had relations. They came together as husband and wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. You know, one question we might have of Adam and Eve is, are they in heaven? Were Adam and Eve forgiven of their sins? What we see right here in Genesis 4, verse number 1, is Eve's faith in the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. I say, I, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Is this the offspring that is going to crush the head of the serpent? So Eve here is expressing faith in the promises of God. 
And so we have two brothers born, Cain and Abel. And now we read the account of their story. I'm going to read from verses 2 to 10 again for us so it's fresh in our minds. So she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Then verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offspring. But for Cain and his offspring, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. His countenance fell. He was sad. Six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We're going to stop there as we consider these two brothers. So what is the difference between Cain and Abel? You know, we see a dramatic conclusion that Cain slays his brother brutally. But what is the difference between them? Obviously, they have different occupations. One, a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. One, keeper of the field, a gardener. They bring different sacrifices. They have different responses from God. They give different responses to God. And then we have Cain in anger murdering his brother. So how do we tease out these differences? What's the significance of these events? It'd be wrong to conclude that, well, God likes shepherds more than he likes gardeners. Okay, and he had favor for Abel because of his occupation. That'd be wrong to conclude. And I think it would be wrong to conclude, too, that the kind of sacrifice they brought was a difference between them. It's not the kind of sacrifice that they brought that God did not have favor towards them. It's not as if God wanted a blood sacrifice and Abel brought the blood sacrifice of a lamb. And Cain didn't do that. And he just brought some of his grain or his fruit, things that he had produced in his garden and brought that before the Lord. And God said, no, I want a blood sacrifice. That is sometimes taught in this passage, but I don't think that's what this passage is getting at. And why don't I think that? Well, first off, the text doesn't say that. Nowhere in the text, or even the whole Bible, when it talks about this account, does it say Abel brought the right sacrifice in terms of a lamb and Cain brought the wrong sacrifice. The text doesn't say that that's the reason why God had no regard for Cain, but rather had regard for Abel. In fact, both kinds of sacrifices are described and commanded by God in the law of Moses. They were to bring both grain offerings and fruit offerings and offerings of blood in terms of a ram or a lamb or birds. All these things were defined by God as acceptable sacrifices. Now, I think the text does clearly show what the difference was in the two brothers as they offered their sacrifice. Look at verse number four with me. So Cain, in verse three, brought the fruit of the ground. Verse four, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and 
the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offspring, but for Cain and his offspring, he and his offering, sorry, he had no regard. Do you see how the scripture puts those two with an and between? He had he had regard for Abel and for his offspring and for his offering. But the Lord had no regard for Cain and for his offering. There's making a difference here between the people who are offering this offering, between Abel and Cain. And we're going to see that Cain, as he rises, rises up and he slays his brother, the angry, murderous heart that is revealed in this man. And we see rather faith and humility in the life of Abel. So I think it is not a matter of what they brought, but it is the matter, it is the manner in which they brought it. Abel brought it by faith and humility. Cain was harboring anger, bitterness, and resentment. Was not a righteous man. And it's not just what I think, it's what the Bible says later. In Hebrews 11.4, let me read this to you. Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what does the Bible say in Hebrews 11? What the difference is between those two men? It was by faith that Abel offered his sacrifice. It was by his faith, by his heart, by his manner that God accepted his sacrifice. Not the actual nature of it. Not that it was a lamb as opposed to some fruit or grain, but because he offered it in faith and so received commendation. Listen to the words of scripture in Proverbs 21.3. It says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Proverbs 21.27 says this, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination how much more when he brings it with evil intent? So scriptures are clear why God did not regard Cain and his offering. Because he was not a righteous man. He was not offering it in faith and humility. He didn't have the same heart, the same love for God that Abel had. And so God had no regard for him, nor for his offspring, nor his offering. So it is the manner in which they came to the Lord, not the gift that they brought. Now this passage here in Hebrews, then in Proverbs, about the sacrifice or the offering of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent. This, this realization of having a heart that is right before God has such a significant implication for us here today. Okay, I want you to, I want you to realize this. It is not the quality of the songs that we sing here, their musical excellence. It is not how nice you look. It is not your, your regular attendance on a Sunday at church. It is your heart that God is looking at. And that's so significant. It's so significant to realize that God, even though he might have all of the externals just right, 
that God might say, I have no regard for you or for your offering or for your worship because of what's in your heart. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Am I here today in faith? Am I here today in humility before God? Did I just sing songs because I love God? Or was I going through the motions? Knowing that the scripture gives a warning that lip service to God is an abomination to Him. We can actually come together on a Sunday morning and do things that are an abomination to the Lord. Even though on the outside it looks just fine. Because our hearts are not in it. There's not integrity in our hearts. We sing as and worship as hypocrites. And it's not just today, but is what you profess on a Sunday morning, is that consistent with your life throughout the week? Are you putting a show on on a Sunday morning? Or is the things that you say and think about on a Sunday morning, is that consistent with your life throughout the week? Such that you come before God and you offer Him worship in the integrity of your heart. Now, if you're honest with yourself and you do see hypocrisy, if you do see, yeah, my life doesn't match the songs that I sing, my heart doesn't resonate with those hymns that I sing, the response that you need to be careful of is the same response that Cain had when he's approached by God. And what does he do? He gets angry when he doesn't get regard for God. He gets bitter. His face falls. He gets sad. And so often that's the case whenever our hypocrisy is exposed. What do we do? We get angry. We get defensive. Rather than respond in humility. Look how Cain responded again. Verses 5 to 7. It says, but for Cain and for his offspring, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. That's Cain, the ball is in your court here. Are you going to... Respond to my displeasure that your hypocrisy has been exposed with anger and sadness and in your pride? Or are you going to humble yourself? Sin is like a tiger or lion seeking to devour you. You must rule over it. And we see Cain fail completely. But yet this application is for us here today whenever our hearts are exposed. Are exposed. Hypocrisy is revealed in us when God doesn't have regard for our worship because our hearts are far from him. Are we going to respond like Cain? That's a choice that we're faced with today. Are we going to continue and respond in, in anger or in sadness or defensiveness? God says here, if you will do well, will you not be accepted? That is, if you do not come with your heart humble before the Lord. Will he not delight in your offering? God doesn't call us to perfection. He calls us to humility. He calls us to repentance. He's called us to dependence. 
And so if our heart is exposed as a heart that is far from the Lord. We've been uttering things from our lips that are not true in our heart. Then our response is not to be one of anger or sadness or bitterness or defensiveness. It is to be one of, of a cry to God. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, may my heart be tender and soft. Forgive me of my sin. Give me a heart that knows you and loves you. I don't want to fake it anymore. I don't want to go around this world with a self-made righteousness. I want the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want the joy unspeakable that I know others have because of Jesus Christ and his death in their place. I want to live consistently my life in love of this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he's done for me. That needs to be our plea as we come to God. That we want to know him, that we want to see him for the treasure that he really is. Now, the fact that our hearts are completely exposed to God, does that scare you? Or is that actually a comfort to you? Knowing that regardless of what people think or say about you, you will be vindicated because you know your heart and you know your love for the Lord. Or is the fact that God knows your heart a terrifying thing for you? That on judgment day, all the thoughts and intentions of your heart are going to be exposed. And if it scares you, you need to come to the Lord. Repent, ask for forgiveness, and ask for a heart that is soft before Him. Now, this point about offering acceptable sacrifices is, is not the only point of this text. And I don't, it's not even the main point of this text. Okay? The main point of this text is to trace out the plan of God and the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 3.15 about these two offspring, the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman and the enmity, the strife, the battle between them. And we see it right here between Cain and Abel. And listen to how it continues. I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. Okay, so Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. I'm a brother's keeper. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then, the, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This story, as I mentioned, is not finally about sacrifice and a proper mode of approaching the Lord. It's not even about anger. It's not about murder. Or even about sin, it's about these two offspring, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Two lines or two lineages that we see here, the difference between Cain and Abel. And after God's displeasure with Cain here, Cain rises up and he kills his brother. 
And you notice, even as God utters a curse to Cain, there's no repentance. Cain wants mercy, he wants leniency, but never once when God approaches him does he show repentance, does he show remorse for killing his own brother. In fact, he responds, my brother's keeper, denial. And then when he's caught, when he says that your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, Cain just pleads for leniency, doesn't repent, doesn't ask for forgiveness. It becomes clear that Cain is one of the offspring of Satan, that he's of his father, the devil, that he's of this line that is going to be crushed. And why do I say that? 1 John 3.12, listen to this. 1 John 3.12. It says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Okay, it's not about the nature of the sacrifice. It's about their deeds. But within their heart, Cain was of his father, the devil. He was of the evil one. That's the New Testament says. And now with Abel dead, Cain receives a further curse as the blood of Abel calls for justice and for vengeance. And Cain here asks that he'd be protected, he wouldn't be killed. And, and who, is, who are those who are going to kill Cain? Well, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Uh, look at Genesis 5, 4. You're in Genesis 4, so let's look in chapter 5, verse 4. It says, The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Okay, so there were other people here on the earth that were descendants of Adam and Eve. And Cain was afraid of them. And that explains how also Cain got his wife. The next verse talks about how Cain knew his wife. And so where did Cain's wife come from? Well, it was the daughter of Adam and Eve. Not yet forbidden by the Lord to marry in your own family. It was necessity. And so here we have Cain receiving a curse and removed from the presence of the Lord. The same kind of thing that happened in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. A curse comes upon them and they're removed from the presence of God. And so immediately after God's promise of this offspring who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, we have the same kind of thing happening in Genesis chapter 4. It doesn't seem any better. In fact, it seems worse. Now we have murder going on. And so neither Cain nor Abel are now this promised offspring who are going to crush the head of the serpent. There's one verse I want to look at before we continue on in the chapter. Look at me back in verse number 10. And when the Lord said, what have you done to Cain? And he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Okay, Abel's blood here is crying, speaking to the Lord from the ground. And, and what does it say? Justice needs to be done. Lord, you need to take your vengeance upon this evildoer, this wicked descendant of the serpent. And we see God do that. Abel's blood cries for justice. And what does God do? He brings another curse upon the ground. Further cursing the ground that was already cursed in Genesis 3. And not only that, he removes Cain from his presence. He goes further to the east. 
And so here, Abel's blood cries for justice, for vengeance, for payback, to be shut out of God's good graces, for curses to come and to be removed from the presence of the Lord. Now, it's interesting in this verse, there's many parallels between Cain and Abel, between Jesus and his day. You think here about Abel being righteous, killed by his brother Cain, called in 1 John, of his father, the evil one, son of the devil. We have Jesus being betrayed by his brother, Judas, not a physical brother, but one of his disciples. And again, being called the son of perdition, being of his father, the evil one. We have Abel being slain here and his blood crying from the ground, being slain unjustly being a righteous man. We have Jesus, of course, being preeminently righteous and being slain and killed by the hands of wicked men. We have Abel's blood here crying for justice, seeking to bring punishment and to shut out the evildoer from the presence of God. And Jesus' blood also cries, but it cries something different. Listen to Hebrews 12, 4 about what Jesus' blood cries. Hebrews 12, sorry, 24 says this. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you hear that? Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what does the scriptures mean here? That Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Well, Abel's blood cried for vengeance, for justice, to be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And Jesus' blood, his precious blood, cries for mercy, for grace, for acceptance, to be brought into the presence of the Lord through this new and living way, through his sacrifice. So Abel's blood cries for justice. Jesus' blood cries for your acceptance. It's amazing. Hebrews 10, 19 and 22 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, this is how Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. It speaks forgiveness. It speaks reconciliation. It speaks acceptance, drawing near to the presence of God, this new and living way. And again, the question is incumbent upon us here today is, whose blood speaks for you? Whose blood speaks for you? Whose blood are you covered in? The blood of Abel still speaks today. In fact, Jesus mentions the blood of Abel in Matthew 23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Okay, notice same thing. Worshiping God. They had the word. They had the outward practice, but their hearts were far from them. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And later in that chapter, Matthew 23, he says that, And he gives them a curse that the blood of Abel and all the righteous up through the blood of Zechariah 
be upon your heads. This is, what he, this is what he says. I'll quote it. He goes, That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. That is Abel's blood and the blood of those other martyrs in the Old Testament still cry for vindication and for judgment. And it's going to come out on those who reject the Son. And especially those who are the hypocrites, the religious hypocrites, who say they follow God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. Abel's blood still cries for justice to be done to them. And again, Jesus' blood cries for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness, for full acceptance into the presence of God. And so whose blood speaks for you? Are you a religious hypocrite? Or are you one who has entered through this new and living way through the blood of Jesus where the blood has been sprinkled upon you and your heart has been washed clean? You've received a new birth. You've experienced forgiveness of sins. You are now a follower of Jesus Christ from the heart. And because the Holy Spirit has made you a new creature, you love him and you follow him and you worship him because his blood is powerful. His blood speaks for you. You are a sinner and you should be excluded from the grace of God. You should be under his wrath, but the blood of Jesus Christ speaks and says, no, not this one. He is covered with my blood and my blood cries to you, God, acceptance, forgiveness, grace. And so whose blood speaks for you? And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know whether his blood speaks for you, then I invite you today to come to God through the blood of Jesus. I invite you to to throw off the religious hypocrisy and to come to God and to be honest, honest and open about, about him, to him. And say, oh God, I need your forgiveness. I need your blood. I, I need your redemption in my life. And again, I don't want to fake it anymore. I don't want to fake righteousness. When I stand before you, my heart is exposed. What is a fake righteousness going to do for me? Abel's blood will be crying on my behalf to condemn me. I want the blood of Christ. So I invite you to come to Him today and cling to Him. Cling to Him. Well, let's go back to the text of Genesis 4. The read from verse 17 to 24. This focuses on the offspring and the descendants of Cain. We've already established that Cain was a descendant of Satan. He's of the evil one. And now we're going to see his whole line is of the evil one. Starting in verse 17. So Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And to Enoch was born Arad and Arad fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methusael. And Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. 
If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So what's going on here? See the further offspring of the serpent, the line of Cain. Not the righteous offspring. Not those who are going to lead to the deliverance of God's people. Not going to crush the head of the serpent. But rather we see, not only we see some of these people engaged in some of the arts and culture, but we see especially the text highlight the wickedness of Lamech. Lamech here has two wives called bigamy. This is in direct contradiction to what God has already said in Genesis chapter 2. For a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. We have already God's marriage being profaned and defiled by Lamech having his two wives. Not only that, but Lamech is a murderer. And not only is he a murderer, he boasts about killing this young man who has struck him. So he gets struck and he gets gets hit by a young man. And so Lamech, not responding in kind or even giving leniency, but Lamech actually ups the ante and slays this young man for hitting him. And he boasts about it. And he boasts about it. And he says, if, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, okay, so if you were to, if you were to kill Cain, then revenge was going to come upon you sevenfold. If you were to do anything to me, to Lamech, then that revenge is 77-fold. That is, I am more ruthless than Cain, and I'm going to take it out on you 77-fold. Boasting about his murderous and wicked heart and his brutality to his wives. And so we see here the line of Satan as it gets passed down. Hope seems bleak for the offspring that is going to crush the head of the serpent. But then hope is given at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And again, we see Eve's faith. God has done this. God is fulfilling his word. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. And then verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So as Seth is born again to Adam and Eve, and Eve here cries to God, here God has appointed to me another son. God has provided another one. Perhaps this is the offspring. The question becomes, well, is is Seth going to get murdered? Is Seth going to be an evil one? And we see here our hope established in that Seth and his son begin the public worship of God. In that name, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. The same thing that Abraham did. He set up an altar and he began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is public worship of God. And so we see hope in Seth and in his son. And we know that from Seth and from his son, we have a long line of worshipers. Seth and Enosh, then later Noah, then Abraham, of whom it says in Genesis 12, 8, he built an altar to the Lord 
and called upon the name of the Lord. And then Isaac, his son, in Genesis 26, 25, he built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. All the way down from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And then we get to David in Psalm 105 and he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. We have this line, God's remnant, his people, his people of promise that are going to call upon him. This offspring of the women, woman that eventually we know leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. So neither Seth nor his son are going to be the snake crusher, but their line leads. It points this, this line of worshipers of God that bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who is going to fulfill Genesis 3.15 and crush the head of Satan. Now what we can learn from this is that God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. He promised in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to do this. And even though Cain, that son of Satan, arose and killed Abel, the righteous one, God's plan and God's promises weren't thwarted. For it was through Seth and then Enosh and then down through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, through David and on and on do we have the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And so Satan here cannot stop the plan of God. The most he can do is bite at his heels. And so the death of Abel was not a fatal blow, but a bite to the heel of the woman's offspring. Now those who hear Seth and Enosh call upon the name of the Lord are not just marking a line that leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this phrase is so significant to us here in the scripture as defining one who is a true worshiper of God and defining one who is truly a child of God, who will reign with God forever and ever. In the book of Joel, there's a prophecy that salvation is going to go beyond the Jewish nation. And it says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when Peter preaches on the steps of the temple on the day of Pentecost, he quotes Joel 2 and says, Joel 2, it's happening right now. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing all his riches, sorry, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, and then he quotes Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that Christ has come, this idea of calling upon the name of the Lord defines those who are true followers defines those who are born again, defines those who are children of God, who have the forgiveness of God, who have been reconciled to God. They call upon the name of the Lord. Now what's interesting is that this phrase, as you see in the Old Testament, is a phrase of worship. It's a phrase of worship. And I want you to listen to this. I'm going to say this carefully. Just because someone believes in Jesus 
that he died and that he rose again, that the Bible is true, that the church is God's people, that there's only salvation found in in Jesus, just because you believe that doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Okay? It doesn't mean that you're a Christian just because you believe that. The Pharisees believed that Jesus died and rose again. They couldn't deny it. The demons believe that Jesus died and rose again. It causes them to shudder and to tremble. They, they know it cries for their judgment. Now, a Christian does believe those things. But there's more. There's a heart of worship and of love. They believe that Jesus came and died and rose again. But it's not just an intellectual fact that they need to affirm. It is a life-giving reality. And they love Jesus and they worship him. That's what Paul says when he says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He doesn't mean everyone who has an intellectual belief in the real person of Jesus and what he did is going to be saved. No, everyone who calls upon him who calls upon him in their sinfulness and calls upon him for his acceptance, for his mercy and for his grace, who calls upon him as Lord, as creator, as the all-sufficient, all-wise God who knows everything, as Yahweh, as Jesus Christ, who is the master of heaven and earth, and he's the master of our life. And so we come to him like that. And if you don't come to Jesus as Lord, then he's not your savior. We have bifurcated. We've made a division in our day and age between making Jesus your Savior and making Jesus your Lord. The Bible will have none of it. This text says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, that he is their master, that he is God, and they have a heart of submission and love for him. Love is at the center of what it means to worship. It's, it's obviously not defined in the things that we do. Not just, the, not just the singing, not just the bringing a certain kind of sacrifice. It comes down to love. And that's what Jesus taught. It's all about love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you do the external things and do not love me, then you do not know me and I do not know you. A Christian is defined not just by intellectual data that we might affirm, but it's defined by a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and recognizing he is Lord of all and coming under that and loving him. Being a Christian is being moved to awe as we hear of Jesus and how he, how he speaks in the Gospels and how he responds to the religious, religious leaders of the day. We're brought to such awe and wonder at this man, this Christ, this Lord who would do such things. We're moved to sorrow as believers when we contemplate the crucifixion, when we hear of him being beaten and tortured, when we hear of a bag being put over his head and him being struck and they say, prophesy, 
when they spit on his face, when they mock him with a crown of thorns, when they dress him in robes of purple, and when they lash him and beat him and strike him and spit on him, and when he hangs on the cross with nails pounded into his hands and his feet, and they say, look at him, he can't even save himself. And they mock and they scorn at the Lord of glory and it brings us great sorrow. And it brings us agony when we recognize he hung there for me. He shed his blood and he did that for my sin. He's there because I put him there because of my sin and rebellion. And so our hearts break in sorrow and agony as true believers because we love Jesus. And at the same time, our hearts are filled with joy unspeakable that he would do that for me. And that his death and his blood that is shed cries for my acceptance before God. It cries for my forgiveness, cries for reconciliation. And so I'm brought to joy unspeakable. And regardless of the circumstances of life, regardless of how bad the suffering might get, regardless of how bad the relationships around me might get, there is a joy that cannot be removed because I love Jesus and I love what he did for me. That's the heart of a believer. It's beyond an intellectual assent of some facts. We love him. We know that our Savior lives, that he died and that he rose again. And that nothing can separate us from his love. And so we love him, we adore him, and we worship him. We call upon the name of the Lord. And you have to ask, is this your heart? Are you a worshiper of God? Have you been deceived by our cultural Christianity that says that it's an intellectual belief? Has your heart been changed to love God? Has your heart been changed to worship Him? It's not about perfection. It's about worship, a humble heart. And He invites you today to surrender your life in adoration and worship. There's no sin that's too big to keep you from Christ. There's no circumstance in your life that's too big or too complicated to keep you from Christ. There's nothing you need to do in your life to clean yourself up before you come to Him. We come to Him with our sin. We come to Him with with open arms and saying, Christ, I need you. So I invite you to come and to call upon the name of the Lord today in humility and truthfulness and integrity in your heart to join the victor side, to join the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the feet of Satan and not be crushed along with Satan and his descendants. And if you are here this morning and you have called upon the name of the Lord, you are a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to adore him, continue to stoke affections for Christ, continue to worship him, continue to love him. Be moved from this text that the promises of God will never fail. That he promised in Genesis 3.15 and Satan's best efforts to kill Abel in Genesis 4 did not succeed in thwarting God's plan. So be confident that God's plans will be accomplished. He will return and he will welcome you into his kingdom. So let's love him. Let's adore him. Let's worship him. Let's pray.
God, I do pray this morning that you would give us hearts to adore the Lord Jesus Christ. We all recognize as believers here in this room that there are times in our life where our love seems to grow cold. But we know that you will keep us. And we know that our love, while it might grow cold, it cannot be extinguished. And God, I pray that you would use today to fan into flames a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his blood that was shed, for his righteous life that was lived, for his vicarious sacrifice in our place that pleads for our acceptance before you. Oh God, give us hearts that love Christ. And God, if there are people here this morning whose hearts are not filled with your love, who do not know what it's like to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, oh, I pray that today would be the day that you would remove all excuses, that you would remove all anger, all pride, all self-sufficiency, all bitterness, all sadness. May there be no responses like Cain when approached with a heart that was not full of love and worship towards you. Oh God, break our hearts and then fill us with the love of Christ. Make us worshipers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.